Well, good morning. Welcome again uh, to Christ the King. We're very glad that you all are here. And uh, if you have your Bibles with you, take them out to uh, Luke chapter 14. We're going to continue our look at the parables of Jesus uh, with one that I really, I really like and I think it's uh, important, uh, as they all are, but one that's easy to overlook. And so we're going to look at this one in Luke chapter 14. We're going to begin reading at uh, verse 7. Uh, down through verse 14. The parable uh, really kind of hangs together with the rest of the section, but I decided to split them up just so that we could absorb it a little bit better. And so I'm uh, encouraged to uh, do this only through the 14th verse. And uh, let's read together. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. Uh, He was at a dinner at a banquet. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who has invited you will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." This is God's Word. I know all of you have been uh, invited to a wedding or something special like that uh, where, you know, there's a a reception table. We recently went to a a banquet. We were invited by uh, Raul and Sarah, and and, uh, uh, they had uh, tables up close to the front and tables that were towards the back. And and if you've been invited to a wedding, you know that there's a table where the wedding party sits, and then usually around that is the friends and relatives and close people, and then further and further back, uh, uh, it's uh, people that may not know them quite as well. Uh, in that day, in the day that, uh, of Jesus' time, there was a very strict etiquette on how people were seated. They had these low couches that seated uh, three people at a time, and, and uh, the host would generally sit in the couch in the middle with people on his right and left who were the honored guests. And then the couches would then be arranged around that in somewhat of a semicircle, uh, and food would be uh, offered and uh, drinks and whatnot, and, and people that were honored uh, were up in the front. Jesus is invited to this banquet, and for whatever reason, people were scrambling over themselves to get to these seats up in the front. And he notices this, and he begins to 
explain to them really, I think, what is going on beneath the surface. If you look at this parable, and this is why I said earlier, it's easy to just take it in and say, well, he's giving us a good moral lesson, how to be nice to you know, people that are not our close friends and to help the poor and that kind of thing. But it's much, much more uh, than that. He's looking at people scrambling for the seeds and he is discerning something that is beneath the surface that I think is true um, of all of us. And we've been looking at these parables because Jesus' view of the world is completely upside down. It's completely different uh, than the normal view of the world where power and strength and honor are set way at the top. That's what's important. Having lots of power, influence, money, uh, approval of people, to be well thought of, good reputation, all that. None of that is really bad in and of itself. And Jesus turns that up on its head and He said the way of the kingdom, kingdom life is going to be distinctly different. It's not going to be a warrior uh, the king isn't going to come as a warrior. It's not going to be armies and, uh, and political and military victory. It's going to be a farmer. It's going to be seed. It's going to be slow, the agonizing slow and, and weak uh, power of agriculture. You know when a seedling is just coming up, if it's not tended to, if it's not cared for, it's easily trampled. Insects can get to it. People can walk on it. Uh, too much rain will destroy it. Not enough rain will destroy it. Very fragile. Life is fragile, especially at its beginnings. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom is going to come in this way, not with all the flash, bing, bang, and boom that we would normally want it to come. And so this parable in particular, I think Jesus does something very deep. I'm going to try to take you there and hopefully you'll see it. First, He's appealing through the parable to the crowd that he's addressing and the people hosting it, how we see ourselves in the world, our self-assessment. What do we think of ourselves? Okay, that's first. Which Jesus is going to say needs to be counterintuitive, it needs to be countercultural, and it needs to be upside down. It's not going to be the normal way. We're not going to scramble over one another and trample one another to get to the front. So how do you see yourself? Secondly, how do you see others? How do you see what, like last week, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and, and, and it's so familiar that it kind of goes over our head, but what Jesus is saying is, what do you see? When you are going on your journey through life, what do we see? And then how do we react to what we see? Are we moved with pity and compassion? Because we see the ravages of sin in the world and the brokenness of the world, are we moved in any way towards that? Or are we kind of cold-hearted and, you know, kind of avoid it, stay in our own little cluster of things? And he's saying you've got to move out into the uncomfortable, into the countercultural, into the upside-down kingdom. So how do we see ourselves? How do we see others? Because these two things put together are powerfully able to get us to change the world. Violence and warfare usually does more damage than it does good. This way does good in a way that no one is damaged. So finally, how we see the world. You see, how you see yourself, how you see others, 
is also going to affect how you see the world around you in general. What do you see out there? Is it something that you're just going to step back like, oh, by the way, did you all know the world was supposed to end yesterday? Do you, I mean, really, this was a real th- this was a thing. It was in the Washington Post. The world was supposed to end yesterday. The rapture was supposed to happen yesterday. You all are still here, so guess what? Okay? The Antichrist will be out there waiting for you in the parking lot when you get out there. I mean, come on, folks. You know... How do you see the world? Do you see the world as just a lost cause? And it's easy to see that with the anger and the political rhetoric and the hatred and the violence and crazy people having nuclear weapons and and crazier people having nuclear weapons. Okay, never mind. I went over your head. I mean, come on. It can be very easy to just want to shrink back into your little hole and say, you know what, I don't want any part of this. I'm just going to hunker down and wait till it all passes over like like a hurricane. But you know, there are some hurricanes that you don't pass over. They aren't just going to pass over you. They'll take and do damage. So how do you see the world? How you see yourself, how you see others, how you see the world? Let's look at it real quickly. How do we see ourselves? What is our self-assessment? Jesus uses this very simple illustration, this very simple parable. He noticed how they chose the places of honor. And so He said to them, when you're invited, don't sit down in the place of honor. I mean, He goes right at it with the skill of a surgical knife. He slices through all the layers that are there in a human heart, in a human being. Everything that's there, He slices right down to the very center. And He says, don't do it. Don't go there. I notice you're doing it. Don't do it. Why? Because someone more distinguished than you may come along and then you get, in, you get asked to move out of their place and the other person gets the place of honor and you're embarrassed. Jesus was amazing. He was a genius at getting to the heart of the matter. He knew why people were scrambling and He knew what would happen when they were asked to move lower that they would be embarrassed. Do you see what He's doing? He's saying to those people that were there, there's three things I think we can see from this. There's probably more, but I just picked three because three is easy to remember, and these were the three that struck me. First of all, he's addressing people that feel they are entitled. You see, their self-assessment, the way they look at themselves is, I deserve to be up there at the front. I'm a really good person. If, I, if, if anybody should be there, if anybody should be getting honor, if anybody should be sitting up in these seats of honor, it should be me. Because look, I'm an important person. So it's that kind of person. It's the kind of person that wants to be seen, wants to be known, wants to be recognized, wants their name on a plaque. You know, when we got this building and Rick and Sal put in so much hard work, I'm going to embarrass Sal. Rick's not here, so it doesn't matter. But, uh, and Sal, he'll be okay. He won't, he won't die from what I'm going to say. I told him, you know, I want, a, I want a plaque in our church that, that honors these men and the hardwood. This building wouldn't be here if it weren't for those two men. Everybody contributed. We all did a lot. But they, they, they went above and beyond. And uh, anyway, so we figured out a plaque. Do you know how hard it was for me to get them to agree to let me put their name on a plaque? I had to fight with them tooth and nail. Finally, just by 
by uh, the sheer power of my personality. <laughs> no, come on. I mean, I, I just told them, we're doing it whether you like it or not. Just a, a little bit of honor to these men who worked so hard. But it shows you, it, wasn't, it was that they truly had that kind of a heart where humility it was real, it was honest. The kind of thing that we want, I want to be Sal. I want to be Rick. I want to be like those men. I want to be like Dave. They're the kind of people that make you, that, that make you want to be better, that lift you up. And that's what Jesus is saying. Why are you doing it? He's, he's asking, he's going down below the surface saying, just don't do it just because I'm saying. Ask yourself why you're doing it. What is your self says? Do you really believe you deserve this? The second thing is, they may be clueless. They may just be going through life thinking, oh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a great person and there's really nobody better than me. I mean, do you really think that? I know probably here in this church, we don't have any people that are that, you know, bizarre. Uh, but, you know, do you not realize that there are other people out there, quiet people, behind-the-scenes people, that do the work, everyday work, the hard work of life and Christianity and everything else, and they're better than you? Do you realize that there are people out there in the world that are not Christians, that are better than you, that are kinder than you, that are more compassionate than you. One of the places where you'll meet some of the meanest people in the world is in a church. Yes? I mean, you will. You will you'll, not in Christ the King. That's not possible. But there are churches out there full of mean people. Religion and Christianity per se does not prevent people from being mean and hateful. And so we need to have this attitude in us. You know, there are other people out there that are, that are good people that are better than me. A, a proper self-assessment. You don't want to be entitled. You don't want that sense of entitlement. You certainly don't want to be clueless going through the world thinking, you know, there's nobody better than me. Or you could be third jealous and envious. You want what they have. In other words, approval and the, and the, the, the good look of other people is so important to you. This is where things like codependency come from. We, we need people to need us. We need to be liked. And if we're not liked and we're not needed, or if we're disrespected in some way, it strikes us, it strikes us hard down at the bottom of our, our, our being. And we can often be upside down because of it. It can throw our whole life into a cataclysm if we're not treated right. It's plain and simple, folks. Having that, those attitudes is what we call narcissism. You know the Greek myth of young Narcissus who came to the pool of water. He was such a beautiful young man and he looks in the pool of water and he falls in love with himself. And he can't stop looking at himself. And he's gazing in the pool and gazing in the pool to his own destruction because he can't take his eyes off of himself. Listen to what some great... Christian authors. I have hundreds of these, by the way, and I picked only a few. Dr. J.C. Ryle, or Bishop Ryle, said this, Humility, listen, humility may well be called the queen of Christian graces. To know, here's how he describes it, to know our own sinfulness, weakness, to feel our need of Christ is the very beginning of saving religion. 
the man or woman who really knows himself, his own heart. In other words, you've, you've taken the time to, to do healthy, healthy introspection, looking down inside and saying, wow, there's some stuff in here I can't let anybody know. I can't ever let anyone see that. Only God can know me at that level because if anyone knew that, they would, they would run away. The man who really knows himself, his own heart, who knows God and His infinite mercy, His holiness, His majesty, who knows Christ and the price at which He was redeemed, that man will never be a proud man. You see, this, this kind of person that, that, that Bishop Ryle is describing is a man or a woman who's able to, get, to take a good self-assessment, look inside and say, wow, there are things here that are not good. Look outside at Jesus Christ and the mercy and the price that was paid for our redemption. And look at the holiness of God. How would we ever, ever have been able to approach a holy God, a righteous God, a good God? How would we ever get there? We would have had to be perfect. Well, we're not. So then what do we do? We look to the one who is perfect, to Jesus. Dr. Robert Rayburn, one of the founders of the PCA, listen to what he said. The worst sin of pride, I love this, the worst sin of pride is its breathtaking dishonesty. Pride will blind us, it will make us dishonest. It will construct a view of ourselves in defiance of the facts. Don't you love that? In defiance of the facts, we'll have this view of ourselves like Narcissus did. And then he quotes Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa said this, I am always very glad that my slanderers should tell a little trifling lie about me rather than the whole terrible truth. And she was better than any of you. Do you see? The insidious nature of pride is such that we rarely appreciate how proud we are. And the index of pride's power over the heart is that even the purest motions of the Christian soul are deeply affected by it. Listen, indeed, it is possible. This just got me in the heart because this is me. I'm sorry to tell you. It is possible to be proud of one's confession of sin, of unworthiness, or secretly to congratulate oneself on one's brokenness. Now there you're ta- now you're talking you see we can actually be, oh I'm I'm very humble I'm very I'm broken I, I really am rep- I'm one of the best repenters I love repent and we go on and on well what do you think that is Dr Robert Rayburn wow what insight and of course CS Lewis I've quoted this before humility is not thinking less of yourself it's what thinking about yourself less you see, it's not, it's not this self-loathing and self-hatred that he's, that's, that's humility. No, it's starting to develop. And listen, folks, let me be honest. It's going to take a lifetime. It's going to take a lot of suffering. It's going to cost you. But it's, it's looking outside. It's starting to get outside of yourself. And you parents that are teaching your children this now, you're doing them a great favor. And if you're, if you're older and you've, you've struggled with that all your life, don't give up. Keep working on it. Getting outside of yourself. Starting to look outside. And this is the second point. Humility is a healthy self-assessment that will take you outside. And this is where Jesus goes. He's brilliant. I, I love Him. Don't you love Him? Not so much, huh? Okay. 
Uh, yeah, I'd be careful about that. <laughs> Don't you love the way he thinks, the way he talks, the way he expresses things? See, have a healthy self-assessment. Why are you scrambling over? What do you want the, the chief seat for? Wow, he cuts right down. Then he says, sit in the lowest place. Wow, don't sit up there, sit down here. Now he's going to the whole idea of others. Look at verse 10. He says, sit in the lowest place. Don't sit there, sit here. Now, you could, you could go to the lowest place. Now, this is possible. You could say to yourself, I'm going to go to the lowest place because I am so awful and I'm so unworthy, and everybody here hates me, and I'm really not appreciated at my church. In my church, nobody says hello to me, and I do so much work behind the scenes, and really, I'm not that great. I'm such an awful person. There's not a better, there's not a worse sinner at Christ the King than me. Self-loathing, self-hatred, which is really what? It's just a form of what? Pride. It's just pride. It's pride by any other name. It smells as stinky. It's still awful to say that I'm, I'm the most hateful thing in the world is nothing but a reverse kind of pride. And Jesus is addressing that. Go sit at the lowest place and see what rises up to the surface. And if what rises up is self-loathing, you're in trouble. I don't deserve. Everybody deserves to be at the front but me, not me. He also says avoid manipulation. In other words, what you don't want to do is go sit. I know what I'll do. I'll go sit in the lowest seat. Because after all, I know that these I'm better than these three people. Right? So I know I'll get moved up at least by three slots. What are you doing? Do you see it? We don't want to manipulate. We don't want to hate ourselves. Sit in the lowest place will expose that. It'll bring it to the surface. The Apostle Paul put it this way, and I know you're familiar with this verse, very familiar verse, in Philippians Uh, chapter 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So by telling us, sit in the lowest seat, he's saying, go there and see what comes. See what happens to you. Just like don't sit in the high seat, see what comes to you. Self-assessment, assessing others. You see, if you sit in the lowest seat and you do it with the right heart, saying, you know, I'm really not sure who's going to be invited today. There's probably some honorable people here, people better than me. I I should take a more modest seat in the room. I should wait. And second thing, I should trust who? The host. Isn't it the host's prerogative? Isn't it his right to say, you sit here, you move here. You know, back in those days, they didn't have the little place cards where you knew where to sit. just wasn't done. It was more organic. And, uh, and so people were supposed to express a certain degree of modesty. They weren't to scramble and fall over each other to get there. Trust the host, 10B. The, the host may say, friend, move up higher. You see, let the host decide. Instead of sitting back and wondering, am I going to win the prize? Am I going to get recognized today? Am I going to get patted on the back? Instead, you're not thinking that way. You're thinking, who will the host choose? Who is, who is the host going to honor? And you're okay with that. If he honors me, fine. If he doesn't honor me, fine. Why? Because at some level, I know I have his approval. 
I already have his approval. I've been invited. Listen, I was invited to the banquet. You, you, you see, wow, a lot of people are not invited to the banquet. I got invited. <laughs> humility, real humility. And finally, verse 11, it says, embrace the paradox. Je- Jesus quotes uh, Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 26. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the upside down nature of the kingdom? Let me tell you, let me be very honest with you folks. Maybe why our churches, PCA churches in general and Christ the King, we're kind of small, small church, maybe 100 people on a good Sunday. Maybe this is why. This is not attractive to the American mind. Do you realize that? Upside down, humility, sacrifice, service. No, in the United States, you should have your best life now, right now. You should get whatever you want, anytime you want it, to the full, to the max, no matter what. Jesus died so you wouldn't have to die. Jesus suffered so you wouldn't have to suffer. And here at this church, I say, Jesus died. I will say to you, Jesus died so that you could. So that you could die for somebody else, so that you could give your life for somebody. That Jesus suffered so that you could, that you would have the privilege to suffer in this life. Jesus took up His cross so that you could take up yours and represent Him to a dying and suffering world. After a hurricane, after an earthquake, it's very interesting of the multitude of American churches, particularly the word, faith, prosperity, gospel churches, go dark. Because they have nothing to say to suffering and pain other than your faith was inadequate. You get that? And during a hurricane or an earthquake, these people digging people out in Mexico City, amazing. Working 24, 48-hour shifts to get these people out of the rubble. Going without meals, without sleep. They have the answer that the prosperity gospel doesn't have. And so, if that's what it is, I'm happy to be who I am. Amen? Yes? I mean, come on. That's the gospel. The other stuff is just hucksterism. Hucksterism. Friend, move up higher. Let the, tr- let the host decide. Embrace the paradox. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And those that exalt themselves, they're going to be humbled. You know, you may not see it. You have to have an eternal perspective for these things. You've got to look beyond the here and now. Christianity, look, it's not great. It's not great that way. You have to. If you're not willing to look beyond the here and now, folks, the gospel's going to overpromise and underperform. But if you look beyond to here and now, the gospel makes promises that will stagger your mind. Yes? But you have to have an eternal perspective. So finally, how do you see the world? How do you look around? Verse 12 through 14. When you give a dinner, he says this, and, and this is probably a good place, maybe you want to put a note in your Bible or somewhere. When he says don't invite your friends, what he means is, the, the, the meaning of this phrase is don't, merely or don't always 
invite your friends, your relatives, your rich neighbors. You see, even Jesus was invited to the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and even He went to a private party, a private wedding, that not everybody is invited to, and He went many times, and there's no problem with that. So He's saying not merely... He's saying not merely to invite your friend. Don't always just think of your friends. And he explains why. Lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. What he's saying is, he says this, do, and, and there you could put in rather or also, do also invite poor, crippled, lame, blind. You'll be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay. He's saying, what he's saying is, He's not condemning that you have a party and just invite your friends and relatives. He's not saying that at all. He's saying don't do what you do. You see, he's going below the surface, down to the heart motives. Don't do it simply for reciprocity. I know, I'll invite this group of people. Then if they come, they will then feel obligated and invite me to their parties. And this is the way I will get my strokes. This is how I will gain approval. This is how I will march up through the ranks of uh, social standing. This is how I will get more, uh, uh, more higher, uh, terrible grammar, more higher on the ladder, right? That's how I'm going to go up. I invite you, you invite me, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. Now some of you, if you've, been, if you've been coming to Christ the King anytime, you know exactly where this is going and could finish the sermon. But for the rest of you, or those of you that have been sleeping for the past few years, listen. Not to condemn inviting to a party, but to say, sometimes it's appropriate to invite those who cannot repay you. Now, if you're with me, and I hope you are because I'm in the right. (laughs) Come on, laugh. It's funny. Look, if you're looking at the gospel the way that Jesus is presenting it, he's saying don't always invite those that can do good for you back because them doing, inviting you and doing good to you back is your reward. That's it. That's what you're going to get. So be happy with that, but don't think you're going to get any more. That is the end. And when you die, it's over. That's all. But what happens when you invite somebody that can't pay you back? What happens when you actually stretch yourself into that place, that upside-down world, and say, I'm going to do good for no reason other than it pleases my Savior and my God and is His will that I treat those who cannot repay me with great blessing. What is, what's behind all of that? And He says it. You will be repaid at the resurrection. Faith. Real faith, folks, is always going to move in that direction where it looks to do things that you don't need recognition, you don't need to be praised, you don't need the honor of men. What you're looking for is to please your Savior. How you see yourself, how you see others, how you move out into the world. And how? How do we do that? What, what, what is behind it? What pushes us and moves us in that direction? 
Do you remember the verse from Philippians chapter 2 where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look to not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The Apostle Paul knew how difficult this was going to be. He was a very proud Pharisee before he got saved by Jesus and got introduced to the Savior. Very arrogant. Had a very bizarre self-assessment. And Jesus knocked him off that mule, that donkey. And the Apostle Paul was able to say this. After that other. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself, he let it go, he, 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 he released it. By taking the form of a servant, he just didn't move to the middle of the room. He didn't move from the banquet table that he deserved to the middle of the room and kind of wait, see how it all shook out. He went to the back. To the lowest place. To the bottom. He became a doulos. A slave. He emptied himself. He was born in the likeness of men. He was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient Not just obedient, any kind of obedience. No, obedience to the point of death. No one in this room has been asked to do that. To the point of death. Even death on a cross. He doubles down, he triples down. Even death on a cross. You want to talk about death? No, not the quiet death in your sleep. Death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? Not just the host, but the King himself, the one who owns the banquet table, got up, took off his robes, took a towel, wrapped it around himself, got on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples and said to them, I've loved you this way. This is how I've loved you. On the cross, Jesus lost his place at the banqueting table so that every one of us would never let a banqueting table rule our lives because we know that we are going to be welcomed at that table. Do you see? Every slight, every pain, every suffering moment of your life has been taken into consideration in the resurrection of Jesus. And He's saying to you, look to that. Let that be your motive. Let that be your strength. Let that move you along as you struggle through this life. Don't put yourself ahead. Let others go before you. You have nothing to lose because your place is already set at my table. Let that be the ground of your life. If you do that, you will never be moved by anything else. He wasn't. And we're in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we're so very thankful that you left that banqueting table willingly. You stood up 
and came to get us from the back of the room, from the last place, to bring us to the front and seat us next to you in this heavenly glory. And from that point, everything else is not a problem. We have nothing to lose. We have everything to give and everything to gain. Lord Jesus, please help us. I pray that as we consider our self-assessment, that we will see ourselves united to you and look around, see others better than ourselves and trust the host. We trust you. Amen.